Amen. Please take a seat. So grateful for our worship team leading us as we worship our Lord and Savior. And doesn't it just feel good to sing those songs? How great thou art. Living hope. Do you know why we have a living hope? It's because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so a few weeks from now, we're excited that we get to celebrate that during our Easter services. And last week, we already gave you the service times, but if you've not got them yet, feel free to take out your phone, take a picture of it, or there's a worship program. All that information is in there as well. But I want to just challenge us all to be here for those special services celebrating Easter and what God has done. And we've got a great service for Easter planned for you. But I also want to give you a challenge. This is not just for you, because Easter has a great opportunity for us to invite other people as well. Maybe this is a family member or a friend or a coworker or somebody in your life. Maybe it's one of your my threes. We've talked about that concept before. If you've been here, it's the two or three people in your life that don't know Jesus yet, but man, you want to see them come to Christ. Well, this is an opportunity for you to take advantage of that. Um, because Easter is a great excuse to invite somebody to come along, and we purposefully design those services so new guests feel welcome and are able to take some of their steps in their faith journey. And so um, out at the Welcome Center and also out in the display, which I'm explaining to you in a minute, um, there's invite cards for you this weekend that you can take as many as you want and just start inviting people and say, hey, would you come and join me? I was just talking to somebody last week that came to church and now is a heavily involved person in our church because a friend just said, hey, why don't you join me one weekend, and that's all it took for Jesus to work in somebody's heart. So take advantage of that. And if you're like me, I'm a visual person. I would like to get my hands around things. Um, we actually have a display out in the atrium. Maybe you saw it already um, right between the two coffee stations. Uh, it's a big white canvas, and it already has some names on it. And this is for you, just to make this a little bit more real. And so there's uh, markers out there. And what we would love to do, if you're comfortable, you don't have to do this, but if you're comfortable, hey, just write the first name or the initials. Don't put their whole name on it. We don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable, but just the first name or the initials of the person that you want to invite this Easter. Just for you to make a commitment, but then at the same time, I want you to know that we as a church and as a staff and as pastors, we're going to be praying for those people over these next few weeks so God will allow their hearts to soften for God to truly work in their, those people's lives. And so just write them out there, and we're not just talking about one prayer, like we're going to be praying hard for those people, okay? So just be ready for some life changes, just by simply you being obedient to Jesus and taking the next step, inviting somebody else to join us for Easter. But I want to talk to you guys a little bit about um, our Gentle and Lowly message series. It's been such a great book to work through over these last six weeks together. This is the last message in this series. And um, as we talk about it, I want to look at Scripture, of what Scripture says. But before that, I want to tell you about one of my favorite TV shows that I like to watch. And it's one that really intrigues me. It is Shark Tank. Maybe you guys are familiar with Shark Tank or not. Um, I already see some nodding heads, so there's some fellow Shark Tank friends in there. In fact, actually, they already did like 13 seasons, over 200 shows, so I'm apparently not the only one that likes to watch it. Um, but if you're not familiar with Shark Tank, let me give you a quick recap of what's happening. So on one side, you have the sharks. The sharks are just business people. They're men and women from different um, sectors of business that have been really successful and have a lot of money. And on the other hand, you have the other hand of the sharks, you have these young entrepreneurs. They have great ideas. They have a great uh, marketing plan. And so what they do is they come into the show and pitch their idea to the sharks. And the sharks have an opportunity to ask questions, to negotiate. 
and then they have a chance. So, and the ultimate goal is for these young investors to find a shark that will invest in their company, and then it can launch off, and it's done some great stuff. There's some great products coming out. Just last night, I was using our Scrub Daddy. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Um, but I use that to clean our dishes. That's one of the products that came out of this show. And as I was watching this show just a couple of days ago, I noticed something that I didn't realize before. Because a lot of times when these sharks will interview people, they'll ask about their long-term strategy. And even more interestingly, they ask about an exit strategy. Now, if you're not a business person, you may think, well, why would you do that? I mean, they're just about to launch. There's not really a real company yet. So why would they already ask at the beginning about an exit strategy? Well, it's simple because the sharks have two reasons they want to ask those questions. Number one is if that company takes off and it's going to make millions and millions of dollars, well, they want to know that they're going to be able to sell that company and make even bigger profit and give it to somebody else. But the opposite is true as well. The second reason why they'll ask those exit interview questions is simply because if the company does terribly wrong, they want to be able to know that the owner and the entrepreneur is going to be able to release themselves out of so they can cut their losses and move on. Now, as I think about exit strategies, I also notice that in our lives, we employ a lot of exit strategies, especially most recently. And I'm going to use some exaggerated um, examples, but just bear with me because you may have heard or seen those. I'll make it really simple. Here at church, you ever thought about, well, that worship song really didn't hit my stride, and I didn't really like how that person was singing, so I'm just going to leave that church. It's an exit strategy. Maybe it's your small group leader, and you're like, oh, that person, small group, that always rubs me the wrong way, and I don't really like them, get along, so I'm just going to find another group. I'm just going to exit the one that I have right now. Or maybe it's a friend that you know, has hurt you, and you're like, okay, I'm just done with him and her, and I'm just going to move on, because I don't want anything to do with that person. Those are all exit strategies that we employ, and I'm sad to say, because this one really breaks my heart, and I hope this is not true for you, but I think a lot of times people in our world today, even when we start our marriages, we already have an exit strategy in mind, because if that person doesn't make me happy, I'm just going to move on and find somebody else who will. Those are exit strategies all around us. And if I want you to remember one thing today, it's this, that I'm so grateful that God does not treat us the way that we treat other people and live our own lives. Because he doesn't do that. And I'm going to spend our time together trying to convince you and show you how Jesus does that and why he does not employ an exit strategy. And so as we're finishing our book of Gentle and Lowly, that's the last few chapters. And I want to look at it from a question perspective, right? Over these last few weeks, we always ask some questions to you. And so this is the one I want to end us with. How can we be sure that God has not given up on us yet? Maybe that's a question that you've wrestled with. I know in certain parts in my life, I've wrestled with that question. Well, why wouldn't God give up on us if this is how we treat others? And so together, I want to look at Romans 5, because I think Romans 5 is filled with lessons from the Apostle Paul that teaches us how Jesus views us, views you, and how he wants a relationship together with you. And so what I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage you always, I know we're putting up the mess passages on the screen, and I'll do that for you today, but man, if you want to pull out your phone, and don't check Facebook or emails or text messages, but go right to the YouVersion Bible app or Google Rome, um, Romans 5 NLT, that's the translation we use, feel free to do that. 
Um, if you are using one of our chapel Bibles that are in the back of the worship center, um, they're on page 907, you'll find Romans 5. But I truly want us to look at God's Word and to look at what it says because it's filled with richness. And so the Apostle Paul here in the first five verses, I'm going to just skip those, but I want to let you know that they're filled with rich theology about how we can have confident rejoicing of what Jesus has done. But then he goes on to say this, and I want to read this. It says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us, and I'm going to Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And I'm going to come back to those verses here in a moment, but I want you to remember a time where you went above and beyond for somebody that you loved and cared for. Maybe it was a spouse or a child or a grandchild, and you just showered them with love and gifts because it was a special occasion. You remember a time like this? Maybe it was a coworker that was going through a financially difficult time, and maybe you just anonymously dropped off a gift on their doorstep just to bless them. Have you ever done that? Well, I want to start with a confession that I am a terrible gift giver, okay? You need to know this about me, and I apologize. If you're expecting any grandest gift from me, it's just not going to happen, okay? Let's get this out right now. And actually, as I was at the marriage conference last week, I've had a revelation that I needed to share with all the guys in the room because I didn't know this before, but made a difference already is, do you know that like, if, if you give your wife um, 12 roses at one time, it's not the same as if you give her one rose each month? Like to me, in my mind, that's the same because it's like 12 and 12, but apparently it's not. And if your wife's squeezing your hand right now, it's for you. But I went even a step further. This year, my wife had a birthday, and she's in the room, so let's call it 21. And she was, it was her birthday, and I know I'm a terrible gift giver, okay? So I know this about myself, I'm well aware. So I'm just like, I'm going to go all out for her. This is a true story. And so I didn't just buy 12 gifts for her. I surprised her on one day with 40 gifts. 20, yeah, that's right, 21. <laughs> just twice, because I love her twice. How about that? But they were everything from like a large gift to a surprise of somebody she hadn't seen in a while to a small, tiny little things that we did as a family. And my girls helped me with that as well. But then I asked myself, well, why would I do that? Why would I do that for my wife? Well, it's simple because I love her, right? She's part of my life. She takes great care of me and our girls. I couldn't be more grateful for this amazing woman that just loves on us each and every day, and so we wanted to do something special at least one day of the year, maybe twice if I count Mother's Day. But again, that's not how God treats us. I wanted to do something extra, and then I thought, okay, if I look at these verses, well, isn't it exactly what, what this says in those first few weeks? In those first few weeks, let's go right to Romans 6 and 7. Let's look at that. Even he says, when we're utterly helpless, Christ today, just the right time to die for us sinners. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for someone who is especially good. So what Paul here is saying is that's exactly how we do it sometimes, right? We do nice things for people who we love, who we care for, who are good to us. But that's not where these verses end, right? It's logic to do that. And even back then, 2,000 years ago, it was the same. They wouldn't do necessarily something nice for other people. And if you know anything about the story of Jesus, he died for us. Well, back then, nobody would have died for somebody 
else, even if we're loving those people, if we care for them, if they've done good things, if they're upright people. But again, Jesus doesn't treat us the way we treat others. And that's why I love verse 8. It says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. See, Jesus and God, they don't treat us the way we treat other people. They don't just do nice things for the people that they love and care for and that they're already in a relationship with. What this verse is telling us that we, he died for us while we were still sinners. Think about the word sinner here. What that means is to be as far away from God as you can imagine, to be separated from him, to do things that aren't in his will, to do stuff that are ungodly, that they are sinful. I mean, what we're talking about here and the magnitude of this is, like, let's imagine the Ukraine sending a gift to Russia right now. They're enemies. You don't do good things for your enemy, right? Well, God and Jesus, they did. Jesus died for you no matter how bad your life has been. I wonder who needs to hear that message today. doesn't matter how bad your life has been, all the bad decisions and choices that you have made. Yes, you want to get better, but man, God has forgiven them all for you. He still died for you. That's why it's important. This is the story. When you like fairy tales, like right on a fairy tale, the good guy um, like beats the bad guy at the end, right? That's usually the story of every fairy tale. Well, in the story of Jesus, what this described meaning is, is that the good guy dies to save the bad guy. And guess what? Me, you, we're the bad guys. But Jesus did it anyway. He died for us while we were still sinners. Looking at these verses, Stan Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, he put it this way. He says this, the Greek word shows in this verse here means to commend demonstrably, to hold forth, to bring into clear view, and to put beyond questioning. In Christ's death, God is confronting our dark thoughts that divine love must have an endpoint, a limit, a point of which finally runs dry. In other words, what he's saying here is that Jesus' love for you and for me is deeper, wider, and, and more intimate than we can ever imagine or fathom. He is in this no matter what, where you are in your journey. And if you don't ever experience that love, all you got to do is accept it. You're never going to earn it. You're never going to get good enough and do enough good things for other people or be a good enough person for this to become true because he already loved you when you were his enemy. But maybe you've been with Jesus for a long time, and this is all, no, um, you already heard this, you've seen this before, you're familiar with this concept, and, but honestly, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, I know God loves me, I know he died for me, all good, but honestly, Mark, you know, if he would truly get to know me, if he would truly see who I am, which, by the way, he does, he would just leave me alone. He just wouldn't want anything to do with me because I know the sinfulness and the shame that I carry each and every day. And that if, you, if that is you, number one, my heart breaks for you. But I also want to encourage you because God loves you still. He loves you because he does know you and he has created you and he still calls you a masterpiece. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote Romans 8, he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and he says this. He says, and since we have been made right with God in God's sight by the blood of Jesus Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. 
So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. What this means is that Jesus loved us still, even if he knows us. In fact, if you look at any Bible passage for a period of time and you see a couple of words repeated, that usually means that the author is trying to draw your attention to them. And it's a small word, but I highlighted it for you. The word since. The word since is there twice because it wants to draw our attention and he wants us to know that since Jesus gave your life for you when you were still a sinner, think about it. How much more is he going to love you if he calls you his friend? If Jesus was already in love with you when you were his enemy, now you're his ally, his friend, how much more is he going to love you then? Don't worry. Dan Ortland puts it a little bit more drastic than I would, but he says this. He says, if God did it back then when we were so screwy and had zero interest in him, then why are we worried about it now? See, Jesus wants us. He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us to stop pursuing him because he loves us and all that he's done for us. So when I thought about this, I'm like, okay, well, if that principle is true, it's got to be in the Bible. And so I started reading in the New Testament. It didn't take me very far to come along the disciples. If you're not a Bible person, that's okay. The disciples are pretty much Jesus' closest friends. Throughout his entire time in ministry, those were the people that he rubbed shoulders with, he was on traveling with, they were eating together, they asked him questions, they saw him do incredible miracles. They were the ones that were close to Jesus through and through. But also, if you read about the disciples, you know that these people were messed up. I mean, like over and over, I read the Gospels, the four, first four books of the Bible, and I would want to just sometimes shake Peter. I'm like, why don't you get this? I mean, I would give anything to be with Jesus for all this time, and you mess it up every time. You say inappropriate things, you doubt, you let him down. I mean, there's some betrayal in there. I mean, all the things that I would have said honestly, after a while, I'm like, okay, I'm done with you guys. I find an exit strategy. How about we find another 12 disciples and we'll try again? But that's not what Jesus does. That's not how he treats his disciples. He understands our human weakness. He understands that we are not perfect and that we are going to mess up. And it doesn't mean we don't pursue trying to do better. But in our, in our weakness, he is strong. And that's why I love what um, John 13, verse 1, he says this, and this is at the end of the story, at the end of Jesus' life, he's about to die. This is what he says. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples to his earthly ministry on earth, and now he loves them to the very end. Let those words sink in just for a moment. To the very end end. That's how Jesus loves us. No matter how bad we've screwed up, no matter how much of a mess we've made, he loves us to the very end. It reminds me that of a wedding couple, you know, when they all stand up dressed nicely and what do they promise to each other? I'm going to be with you in the good times and the bad, in sickness and in health till death does us part. Now, I know we don't live up to that standard many times, but man, God does every single time. There is no exit plan for him. No matter how much you messed up, he's never going to call you in his office and say, hey, Mark, we've got to sit down. We're going to have a chat. It's time for you to move on because you've messed up too much. That's not 
how Jesus does it. That's not how he sees you and he sees me. There is no plan. No matter how fickle we are, no matter how much sin we have, no matter how much we doubt him, no matter how much we question him, we're selfish, he is there always till the very end. And so as we close our time and as this book ends, um, gentle and lowly, I want us to go back to the reason why we studied this book in the first place. Because I think a lot of times I've made the mistake where I'm thinking, well, because I am this way, God must be this way, right? Because my father was this way, God must be this way. But that is not true. Hear this today. Because I know I like only certain people, so I'm assuming that God must like only certain people. Not true. Because my love is conditional and has an endpoint. God's must be true as well? No. He loves us always. Because I sometimes don't want to be in a relationship with people anymore because they've messed up too many times, God is the same way? No. He loves us to the very end. His love for us is unconditional. Nothing we can earn, nothing we can deserve, but it is there and it will always be there for us. And so I want to just briefly recap the last six weeks that we've studied this book. And I'm just going to give you the bottom lines, but I want you to truly absorb these truths. These truths that Jesus speaks over us, that Dan Orland pulled out for us in this book, because I think they are so important for us to remember. And if you remember six weeks ago, we started with this. Jesus is always for us. He cares for us. He loves you. He wants to be in the journey with you. And even in the midst of our sinfulness, he is there. You're never going to be too far, too out of reach for God. He cares for you. He'll pursue you. He's the Father waiting for you to return so he can embrace you with open arms. Because he's our friend, he's our companion. He wants to be in the journey with us. He understands that we mess up. But Jesus didn't just leave this earth after his time here and leave us alone. He gave us the Holy Spirit as our advocate. If you've accepted Jesus in your life, you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He's that small whisper that you hear at times steering you in a direction because God wants you to take that next step to him. He doesn't leave us alone. He gave us the Holy Spirit as an advocate. And then last week, I love the way Joe said it, that God's ways are always what's best for us. Believe me, in my life, I've tried many times to go my own way to see what the world has to offer, to see how life can be better without Jesus. And every time I've hurt I've suffered, and it made me and people around me miserable because I missed the point that God's ways are always better for us than our own ways. And then as you leave today, I do want you to remember this. No matter what happened, no matter what your history has been, whatever you're going through right now, he will never, ever give up on you. There's no exit strategy that he has. There's no plan B. You are plan A, and you're always going to be plan A and he will accomplish his work through us. But if we know all this to be true, what does that do in you and me? And so I want to end with Dane Ortland because I think he says it so well. He says this, what is the meaning of everything? What's the aim and the goal of our ordinary, li ordinary lives if we know all of this to be true? Here it is, to glorify God. I mean, after all, what else is there? We are a pieces of art designed to be beautiful and thus draw attention 
to our artist. So if we understand that truth, if we understand that this is who Jesus is and how much he loves us and cares for us, the natural response for us is to thank him and out of that gratefulness is to give him the glory in everything that we do. That means we glorify him how we spend our time, how we spend our resources. That means what we watch on Netflix, that influence the music that we listen to, the things that we surround us with. Is that glorifying to God? I need to challenge myself ever so often. Is this how I want to spend my time? Is this glorifying to God? And if it's not, we need to stay away from it. Not because we have to, not because we must, but man, look at what he has done for me. So if I need to give up something because of that, out of a gratefulness of our hearts, then I am willing to do that, and I hope you are as well. That's the message of Gentle and Lowly. That's why we have went through this book, to make this real for you and for me. And so what I want to do is, as we close our time together, I want to say a word of prayer, then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to say that benediction together one more time, and then I've got some final instructions for you as you leave. But let me just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person in this room.